Ah, hello everybody, Aaron Noonan here. Welcome again to the V8 Sleuth Podcast, powered by Repco. Great to have you with us on this latest episode. Thanks everyone for your ongoing support. Keep the feedback coming. Keep reviewing, keep subscribing. Make sure you don't miss an episode. We drop one every Wednesday, and this one is a special one. It's from the archives, and it's with thanks to the team at the National Library of Australia, an interview with the late, great Bob Jane that, as far as we're aware, hasn't really been published anywhere. So we're bringing it to you first. Now, of course, Bob passed away not long before the Bathurst 1000 in 2018. This chat was recorded 10 years earlier, back in 2008, and it covers a whole pile of amazing territory. Bob talks about growing up in Brunswick, his days racing bicycles, and how he got into car racing. He talks about how he accidentally got into the tyre business, winning the Armstrong 500 with Harry Firth, despite Harry destroying the car in practice, true story, uh, hosting the Australian Grand Prix at Calder and getting the top Formula One drivers of the day from the 80s. Uh, early to mid-80s out here to race, and of course a topic that is very close to our hearts, bringing NASCAR super speedway stock car racing to Australia with the Calder Park Thunderdome. Now you won't hear my voice in this podcast, the voice you'll hear is Rob Willis, who sat down to record this interview with Bob in his office at Calder Park in Melbourne back in 2008. So here we go, from the archives, Bob Jane on the V8 Sleuth podcast, powered by Repco. I was born at Carnegie, don't remember that of course, um, lived in Middle Park, Fraser Street Middle Park from my, when I was born till, till I turned about 13 um, and I then moved to Brunswick with my mother, my brother and my sister um, and lived from, from, lived there for another probably 20 years. We left my father my mother, my my brother, and and my sister and I, we left and went to Brunswick to work in a. My uncle um, helped us. My mum get a, a milk bar in City Road, Brunswick, and we lived and it was a, a shop and a house, above, and we worked lived there and worked there, for probably about I suppose ten more years, and. Um, and Brunswick in those days were a pretty tough suburb. I was just going to say, you'd have to be able to look after yourself a bit to, to, to live there in those days. Well, unfortunately, that was the case because there's a lot of, I think as I recall, and I'm not proud of this, but Brunswick was the centre of the crime city of, of Australia. I reckon it was worse than, worse than Richmond, which seemed to be, people seemed to think was a bad suburb in that era. But... Um, Brunswick was worse than, than Richmond in terms of burglaries and drunks and robberies and fights and calamities, you know. So I had to grow up in that suburb. And I must admit, I thought I was uh, a nice little guy until um, I moved to Brunswick and I had to learn to fight and, you know, defend myself and my family, okay. um, which I did reasonably well. I, uh, I pulled this out of a newspaper article, and I'll just read it to you, talking about Bob Jane. Uh, As a short, underweight kid in Brunswick in the 1930s, Bob Jane solved the local bullying problem by flattening the local lout, laid him out like a mackerel. Even the street gangs which had been coming into his mother's milk bar and causing trouble stayed away after that. Yes. 
That's true. That's Bob Jones? Yes. At that age? Unfortunately, true. Unfortunately, necessarily true. Yeah. And um, no, and that's something I didn't want to be involved in. It was foreign to my feelings, but but I had to defend my my family, my mum. It was a pretty tough place. What, what about mechanical things like, I mean, you know, you've always been pretty handy that way as well. Were you push bikes or did you? Yeah, well, yeah, you're right. I learned to fix my push bike, service it, race it. Um, when I got a car, I mean, you, you learn things quickly. I I was a mechanic in the early part of my life working for Southern Motors, a company I eventually bought. But um, I was never a trained mechanic, but I learned to be a mechanic myself. I used to do work for Dick Beachy, Norm Beachy's father, repair his cars, do bearing jobs, piston jobs, fix gearboxes, which was pretty simple. The cars were pretty simple in those days, not with computers like today, you see. So I learned to be a mechanic by myself, and I was a bloody good mechanic. And at that time, I became a, I was an amateur bike rider, and I became a professional, and I uh, started to win a lot of races. In fact, I won seven wheel races at the Essen Board Track in succession. And uh, seven heats and seven finals, that's 14 races. And um, I back, you know, legally, I back myself and my uncles who trained me. My my trainer was a guy called Wally Don, and he was my trainer as well as my uncle. And uh, and we bet on, on, we were confident I could win. I was pretty fit. I went wood cutting. I got myself pretty fit, and we went and backed me. And I, this particular year, I I uh, won so much money. I sent the book bike is almost broke because I to win seven heats and seven finals in succession was it was theoretically impossible, and um, so you could get odds. But I couldn't do it again, and I kept doing it. And um, I finally, I had the owner of the board track. His name was, was um, uh, Campbell. Uh, it was the general motors dealer in Preston. He owned also the board track, a bit of a tycoon like I became later in the later years. He rang me one day. He said, Bob, he said, I got a problem for the next season. I said, what's the problem? He said, "If because you're taking so much money for the book, it's legally, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not very happy, and if you're around, uh, they they won't come. And I said, well, so in other words, he, he was banning me from the board track for no reason, no proper reason. So I said, well, bug you anyway, because it's too hard to work, and I'm going to go motor racing, which is what I did. Mm. So I, just, yeah, just a couple of things from that time in life. Some of us are good at one thing, but not other thing. Here we've got a bloke who's establishing his business with this all this leather work, and 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 also being very very competitive in a sport. The two things. Now, what I'm trying to get at: Do these things complement each other, Bob? In other words, what you learn as your acumen as a business person does that sort of reflect on your sporting ability and the other way around? Well, there is an intelligent question, of course. Um, because one of the things that, that I, with hindsight, when I yeah. look back from... And that's what we're talking about yeah, here. When I look back from today, um, there's a lot of books, potential books they want to do on me for the last five years or more. 
and and the everyone wants to know the my mentality, how I think to about business because I have been I think reasonably successful uh, in business and but I do it differently. I'm and so the, there's an element of people want to know what role as you're saying. If I repeat what you're saying in different words, a lot of people want to know what relationship motor raising have on my business and what. Relation, what did my mentality and my business have on my motor race? And what, why did I do things a certain way? Which is, why was I so aggressive in my advertising or my aggression or my apparent aggression in a race car, which was really aggression to win? And that, that aggression was there on the bikes, it was there in the cars. And one, and one of the things that I, I raced in Aintree in England in the British Grand Prix in 1962. I got pole in the Jaguar, that model there. I raced for Jaguar themselves, Jaguar factory. And I got pole, that means I got, <laughs> was the fastest car. During the race, I wouldn't let people slipstream me. They didn't comprehend that, but in the box, that's part of the winning, the sips, you know, sitting on a guy. Anybody who understands that, you know. But in cars, it hadn't been thought about. And they said, and I, you know, I had a, I'll tell you the words, it was rather, I was seen as uh, that Austra- chunky Australian that got piled in the Jaguar, and, which really shocked the, for the, 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 the racing fraternity, right? I was with John Cooper at the time, and, and Sir Jack Bradman and Bruce McLaren. And um, having got pole and it, they sort of came from everywhere to look at how this was possible because I didn't have a really good car. I had a works car, but I had to fix it myself. And I had a mechanic. I, it was a car owned by a person called John Coombs, a Jaguar dealer in Guildford in, in England, in London. And the mechanic was given to me. He said, well, do whatever Bob wants. So I set the car like I did mine in Australia. Little things like springs and shockers and different shows and things like that, and uh, in a car that hadn't won before. And um, anyway, after the race, they said to me, "You know, a sale chap. You know, we don't really drive like that here." And and because I came from Brunswick and trained in Brunswick, I said, "Stiff shit, old chap. That's how. Yeah, that's how I race." And you know, and why? And the officials want to know why I wouldn't, why I made violent moves on the track when I'm leading, so they could sit behind me. So they didn't understand. In those days, no one comprehended that in motor racing, though they do well today. I can assure you. Every lap in under a minute means every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint, May 17 to 19. Book now at Tick Attack. Supercars, unforgettable. Okay, you, you bought yourself a first car. Let's go back. You, the first car you bought. Now you, you're a pretty hard worker, and obviously you've you've saved up and you saw this. What Chevy was it? Yeah. Okay. Well, that was just transport, right? And um, and that was a car that I could afford at the time. Um, next car I bought was when I was bike race was a '36 Buick. Beautiful old car, which I'd love to have now. Um, next car, I, um, I forget about cars now. I've got to think back. Bought a fifty. I bought a nineteen fifty-five 
forward custom line, new, in 55. And that's one of the first goes I raced. I got a photograph of that. I raced at Norm Beach, you raced one too, at Albert Park in 56. And I raced it at Phillip Island. And sorry, sorry, at, uh, I raced it at, at um, Fishman's Bend. I raced it at a couple of racetracks. Use not really a good race car, but you race you like you, know, you race your bike, you race your car, you know, and that, that's philosophy. Then I bought the 300s Maserati up there. Bought that in '57. I raced that in the '58 Grand Prix at Albert Park. Came I think sixth or seventh in a sports car, which was not too bad at the time. Frightened myself to death and a few other people, but. I survived. So I bought that car uh, from, uh, it was a works Maserati. I bought it from Red Smith, Red Smith Radio. It scared the hell out of him. It scared the hell out of me too, but that's the first race car I bought. So I went from nothing to the to amazing car in one step. How many years are we talking here? Well, that's 57. 57, yeah. Um, Racing bikes in '49, yeah. buying a Ford Ford Castellan in '55, and bought go you know, from that to a bloody Maserati 300 works race car. Not bad. Was well, not a bad step, was it? Oh. No, didn't think about it at the time, but was was part of the development of your business working because of what your love was of, of motor racing. You thought if I can make a quid out of this, I can. No, look, I I got to tell you that one of the other sayings I've got, if it's any value yes. or any interest to you, I find it, that life was a series of minor accidents for me. What I mean by accidents is that I'd like to be able to say today that oh yes, I was brilliant. I I thought about what I should do very carefully, and um, so then I'm brilliant. But in, in all honesty, I can say to you that. Like the, I bought the 300s race cars because it was owned by a friend of mine. I would be at auction. He wanted to sell it because he didn't want it, and that's the last thing in the world I should have bought to start with. I should have stayed and worked up, but I went from I really went from a 55 custom line to a, a works Maserati in two years, and uh, could have killed myself in it um, easily. Um, but it, it was, so I can't, that happened every, in an evolutionary way rather than, than a planned thing. And see, I'm in the tire business to jump the story. Yep. That in 1962, I was a Jaguar dealer. And I was a Jaguar dealer because Mr. Bryce and the family who sold Jaguar in Australia was a, a saw what I'd done. I went and bought a car. Well, let's go back a little bit. Um, <clears throat> I said to Harry Firth, Harry was a good mate of mine, we raced, we raced in Bathurst together. So I said to Harry, what do you reckon, Harry, what should we, we race the, as you'll see there, the race together in those two cars in the middle. The first of all, in 61, we raced in the 220 SEB. 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 Yes. Okay. Um, and then in 62, we raced the Falcon Pursuit. Just pictures there. Then in 63, we won Bathurst together the first time. But during that period, I said to Harry, what do you reckon is the best car, Harry? And clearly, and obviously, 
and all Harry did was confirm what I sort of already knew, but he was my old mate and uh, my confidant. He said, a Jaguar. So I went So I went down to Bryce and bought that Jaguar. I bought it, and it's HJN710, and I, and I, I won the 62... 62 and 63 for Australian Touring Championship, right in the middle of all this racing, you see. So it's not as if it was one thing we did. So there was a decision I made to buy a car. It didn't, well, it cost a price of a house in those days. You got to remember that money, money, my mother, I bought my mum a house about this time, it cost me £3,000. A house in Spring Hall Road, Pasco Vale. That car was twenty six hundred pounds. A bit of money, but I had a little. I didn't have a lot of money, but I had enough money to go and buy the car. If you know what I'm trying to explain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, it won me two champs. It made me world famous because that car. I when I went to, to pick up a car in England in '62, saying you won the championship, they said to me, "Would you like to?" Lofty England, who's the works manager of Jaguar, run at Le Mans, run the racing program, made the E-type, D-type Jaguar, the C-type Jaguar, the E-type Jaguar. I went and picked up a new Jaguar car at the factory. Would you like a race? Drive. So I drove it. And then they gave me, the following year, a 70, a lightweight E-type Jaguar works car. They gave it to me. So I was in... Dreamland, and they, well, I didn't know it at the time, but when I look back, you know, I didn't appreciate it, or I didn't appreciate it, but I didn't see the significance of it as I do now to have a works lightweight E Jaguar. I was the only made 20 in the world. They gave me one because I drove so well. So, <clears throat> what I'm trying to say by buying that car, then I, the Bryson family adopted me and offered me the Jaguar dealership. And so through the Jaguar dealership, I had a problem with tyres on the Mark 10, and and I'm sitting there, and I sold cars to a lot of people. Of course, I was very successful as a new Jaguar, and they, the Bryson family, promoted it. You know, they were happy to give me anything I wanted. I got all the E-types I wanted. I got all the Mark 10s I wanted, all the Mark 2s I wanted. So it was really a dream come true which, again, I have to look back to appreciate that. And uh, there was a problem with the tyres on the Mark 10 Jaguar, so, which is the story of my life in a way. So um, I'm sitting there. I sold Jaguars to uh, uh, Watkins, the butcher, and he was he lives in Turak, and he's a good... I didn't, he wasn't that friend, but he, he because of the race trial, he bought his cars from me, and he's rang me, not abused me, he was saying, Bob, why can't you fix my car, my tyres? I said, well, I'm sorry. I replaced the tyres, but the tyres are no better. So uh, the accident happened again. I get a letter from my, my associate in the city, Laurie O'Neill, and we are selling Peterbilt trucks at the time, and they, he got an offer of truck tyres, and he just ran it to his PA, sent this down to Bob, which it came. I'm looking at it. The same day as, as uh, what Larry Watkins is, is grumbling at me, why can't I fix his car? I'm such a famous race driver and he bought his cars from me, he's my friend. Why? I said, I'm sorry because, as I explained, the only replacement size is that tire is the same thing. 
and it's no better. So when I got the letter from Laurie, it said, full the tyres. So realising what, I, what I'm doing, I, I sent them a telex, and I said, listen, Mr. you offered them Mr. O'Neill to full the truck tyres, but do you make passenger tyres? And they wrote back and said, not, yes, Mr. Jones, we make passenger tyres. We make all the tyres as though we for Mercedes-Benz. So give me the sizes. And they had a size. Uh, was a two, um, two, sorry. Uh, I think it was, anyway, it was a size that would replace the Jaguar tyres. Well, it was the first radials, SP3s they were. So I said, right, send me some. So I got them out and that fixed the problem. And you know, all my friends who had Cadillacs and Jaguars and uh, Bentleys and the same time fitted them. So I started supplying the tyres. My spare parts department got so big uh, with tyres, I said, to get, I said, get these bloody things out of my dealership. So I set up a separate place to sell the tyres because it was a pain in the ass. In my dealership, yeah, I set up in brother. I got a picture of it actually, mm-hmm. and of the of the store beside my Jaguar dealership in Brunswick. So I one is here, the other one in Brunswick, selling Jaguar in both places. And um, within, I started at late ninety sixty two with with bringing full the tides into Australia. I really didn't get go fully going until about 1965, you know, the time it takes to... I ended up with four, five brands of tyres and 9% of the market by se- by 1970, by 71, 11% of the Australian tyre market, which was amazing. But again, I can't say to anybody, listen, I'm so bloody smart, I planned all this. That was one of something that, that happened and... The, and, and I use the word accidentally. It's not an appropriate word, but it's a good word to explain that I can't claim my brilliant thinking did it, but the market wanted those tyres. I hit the spot at the right time. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, And within seconds, you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out. Let's go back to the the early days. Now, we're talking um, the first one here in the 220 SEB. What's the, the B? I know the SE is a injection. SE is a model. E is for injection. B model. I don't know. SE. Now, here we here we have a standard motor vehicle that you've taken to, to Phillip Island at this stage of the game. Um, was it the fact that you and Firth could sort of get together and drive the thing? Or no, what was it? We, we, very unusual. I drove a Falcon mm. in 1960 with Lou Molina. Yeah. And Lou, we, Lou rolled it and... We came about six or something. In the first year, the two boys from Tasmania Mania raced a 220 SUV and they rolled it. So it got mm. nowhere, but it showed potentiality of being fast. So Harry and I sat down and talked about it for 61. 
and I went down to Three Point Motorsport, a demo that car, and we we couldn't do much too because they were production cars. They could tune it, change the plugs, shockers. We did some work with Olympic tyres to develop tyres for it, um, and we used those tyres. and And funny enough, we I'm the I was the lead driver because you know Harry was smart. I was young and crazy and fast. So I was fairly fast in well, I was very fast in those days. I could always get pole. And uh, Harry, I started and we got a puncture in the first lap, and the puncture required you to change the spare with the tools in the car in that year, 61. So I had to get out on the racetrack or off the racetrack, jack it up with a jack that was in the boot, the wheel braces in the boot, and change to put the spare on. And I had to drive my ass out all day because I lost more than a lap. And I drove all day like a lunatic. Well, not like a lunatic, as fast as I could, without let-up, just no brakes. Harry did the same. Like Harry had to share the drive with me, and we won it, which was a minor bloody miracle, having a, maybe two laps out of the race behind. It took us all day to pick it up. So so we won the race, and that was, was great. Next year was the was the Falcon. Now they they had a notorious front end in them, and didn't they? They were they were a shocker of a thing. Those uh... they were. Well, Harry had the he, Harry used to drive, having won Bath, having won the uh, Philip Island race with a Mercedes. Harry, who had been working with the Ford Motor Company mm. on rally, they obviously give so well. I had a couple of pursuit. Uh, Falcons. I've got all the pictures of them in my files here if you ever want to go through through them. And so we, 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 well, again, Philadelphia is a pretty fast track. And uh, I had the skill and would help. And Harry, Harry was a great guy. Harry would help me with, uh, what's the word, with restraining me and, and, and putting a bit of, um, What's the word? Put a bit of maturity into my driving and my what I did, but he recognised I was quick. Mm. So with that, with that control over me, and without doing silly things or anything like that, without over. In fact, Harry rolled the the Falcon on the Saturday night before the race in '62. He didn't mention that. Destroyed it. He said, "Bobby said." We were on Michelin tyres that year, and it 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 was coming up up over the up over the hill, and the the thing jumped on its head. And we we had a second car, and we and we transferred everything overnight. The Saturday night, we transferred to the new car or the other car, and we won again with that. And now we were challenged by the police club. But changing the car, and they want to arrest us and put us in jail because we, because they couldn't understand or comprehend, or, or I don't know what the word the proper word is, but they thought they had an angle that <clears throat> replacing the body, which is a part, was not the same car, but of course it was like the axe for turning your heads and turning your hours. Yeah. But they lost that, but. Maybe we get that right with Harry. <laughs> he jumped off the ground onto his roof, 
in practice on about five o'clock on the Saturday of practice. Oh shit! I'll tell Harry you know, you forgot the, you're pushing these people, Harry. <laughs> now the year after that, if my memory correct is, is, is right, you went back to the four cylinders with the with the. We, G- went, we got the Cortina, yeah. fourteen GT. What do you think of those? Wonderful car, amazing car, absolutely amazing. Because as I recall, in '63. The year we won at Bathurst, Harry and I together again the, for the third time. Um, it was a four-cylinder car. It had 93 horsepower. We, we dynoed it. Um, we did 129 miles per hour. Um, we weren't the fastest, but Harry, Harry, Harry was, he's a funny bugger. You know, he's a secret service agent. I, I uh, tease him and, and still do that he would follow numbers of his feeler gaze and I could see the the mad tweak that he would do to cars because in those days production cars you could change the and all you could do is increase the tapper clearance and the front end alignment and and the tire pressures there's very little you could do to a car to change it but and Circuit Service Harry Firth would would do those kind of things, but we, he could see, and he could see better than me, I must say. I wasn't that confident. Um, or not, I didn't lack confidence, but I wasn't as sure as he was that the car could win because we had Studebaker Larks, which we also tested, were quite a bit faster. But of course, the hair and the, hair and the bloody turtle story is very appropriate because after about five or ten laps, they're gone. They got their brakes too hot. They're too heavy. All the r- things we know about racing cars. This little car went the whole race. We didn't lift the bike. We didn't touch the oil. Didn't check the water. Did nothing. Just drove like a mad dog all day, and it won. It won. Mm-hmm. And we, uh, and of course, Harry had prepared the engine, and all he ever did was look at the parts bin at the Ford Motor Company. And down at Geelong and take parts that were, let's say, were cast to the max of strength for front end parts, for the holes in the intakes, for the, and we had 93 horsepower, and that engine was like gold because the most anyone else had was 91 horsepower from that engine, and and that when we won the race, that car became a rally car because it had this. Demon engine that that had ninety three horsepower, brake horsepower, which in those days was very very powerful little car. Yeah, and disc brakes on the front. And then the second year, which with I won with without Harry now because Harry and I are different sponsors. I run with George Reynolds was uh, the long distance one where they put a bigger fuel tank in the back. So it's cool, good. First one was your Cortina GT. Same one was your Cortina GT500. Yeah. That's what they say. Yeah. And that, and that progressed, and, and you were doing other forms of motorsport at all at, at this particular well, point. Well, I had the Jaguar racing yeah. at the same time. I had, um, you know, that we were selecting cars like pedigree horses in our own way that we thought could win for various reasons. Harry was very wise. They called him the fox, fox but yeah. no, it wasn't. It was quite a valid thing, you know. Yeah. 
Any particular cars out of that era that sort of, you know, I'll take that one home, it really did, was one of your favourites? Well, well, the Jaguar was, of course. Yeah. Cause I had a private car, it was a Jaguar. My brother had a Jaguar Mark II and I had the race car. But, you know, cars are like um, shirts, you change them. The tool of the trade, I suppose. That's right. They were not emotional things in those days, even though I've got that Jaguar. Yeah. And I've got that Camaro up there. Yeah, and the, yeah, the ZL. Yeah, I've got that. Yeah. Now, you've got a few of these still wandering around the place. Yes, you've, got, you've got the one of the Cortinas, haven't no, you? I, no, the museum's not, got a client of it. Oh, right, okay. Oh, I've got the Camaro, the Jaguar, uh, the uh, McLaren. I've got a few cars. Yeah. So, getting aside from touring car racing, your other interests as well in in the sport. Bob? Well, we, we won the well. First of all, I bought the Mark. I bought the the um, Brabham from Sir Jack Brabham in nineteen sixty five, and we won the with Spinsman driving won the Golf Star fifty five or fifty six fifty seven two two years. Um, I prepared. I mean, I prepared that car for what our race team did. I drove it, in, I tested it here because Spencer lives in Sydney, so I prepared the car here in Melbourne, not here at the track, mm. test it here and take it up through. The, so I, I've done a lot of laps in that car myself. Um, the McLaren car, uh, John Harvey won too. National Sports Car Championship. I also won a lot of races, probably also. So, different cars, you know? yeah. Different shirts in different areas, you know. Yeah. What um, created you interested in in NASCAR? Was that something that went back a while to? Well, NASCAR is another story. I went to um, to America in 1964 as against the Ford Motor Company, having won with the Falcon we're having one of the Cortinas and uh, in 63 64 Falcon in 61 um, and um, as a guest of Ford Motor Company went down to Charlotte North Carolina to, to what's the NASCAR race down there and uh, um, I met the Holman family who prepared the NASCAR races cars for the for the Ford Motor Company and for their drivers in that era. I went to the Holman family home, did water skiing and got to know a lot of people there. Um, I met um, and I thought, well, what a great sport. So bad. so that was 64. In 1980, I got the Grand Prix for Australia, well, for five years here. And during the years from 80 to 84, when, and the following year went to, to, um, I arranged, I did a deal for the Goats as an international event to, uh, to Adelaide. I started talking then, now I went down to see NASCAR in 82. So remember, so there's eight years elapsed since I'd been to Charlotte. I met Bill France Senior, the guy who founded NASCAR. I met the son of Bill France, who now just in that era, nineteen eighty-two, he'd become the the CEO, but still under his father's leadership. I met his, I met Bill France's daughter, um, 
um, or I met the family. And um, we we uh, agreed in in eighty two, in principle that I could run NASCAR in Australia, and I had to build a. It hadn't been a track built in twenty years that stage, and I said I'll build a track, without me realizing that I was. Most people thought I was full of bullshit. I did, I did want to do it, so I bought the land, I got the permit, I got the permit in 84, had it finished by 88, that's it over there. Yep. Now it's being re, it's being re, uh, what's the word, re-engineered again, because it went for 11 years. Honda built one and spent $2.2 billion, billion dollars, in, in Japan to build one. They ran it for three years. They got lots of money. I built mine myself. I built that myself, more or less. I just, when I say I build, I mm. get contracts to build a build, put in means a ton of soil, everything like that. And um, anyway, we st- we over the track in 1988 and ran it for 11 years. Um, it was pretty good, but it was be- really before its time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because basically, in in two thousand, we had problems with insurance and problems with people and the economy and things like that. Air strikes and a lot of things happened. Anyway, I I stopped running racing in in one. So that was what seven years, six, seven years ago, but. But I've now got a contract with them again to run it again. So we're now re- rebuilding the whole, whole place. Yeah. And that just brings us back to, you, you mentioned bringing the, the, the Grand Prix to Australia. Can you tell us, just run us through what, what the sequence was with that? Well, I just, okay, well, um, what happened? The Grand Prix, Australia has got a rich history of motorsport. It's uh, yeah. In other words, we run Australia. When I say we, Australia as a nation, I talk as an Australian. Australia has run one way or another the second oldest Grand Prix in the world. French being the the ahead of us, so we're we're second only to France, who's the original of the Grand Prix. The Grand Prix was being run has always been run in Australia as a national event. In other words, not, we wouldn't have international participation, but the Australian Grand Prix was sanctioned by and run by people, delega- uh, delegated by the Confederation of Australian Motorsport in that era. And um, in 1979, the, it had got, because touring car race became so popular, that it had been, and I did. I run the Formula One car in '66, '67, as I said, but then I got out of it, and and because I my love was touring cars, because well, I didn't relate. I, I should have related it, but I didn't relate it to the tire business. But to me, that's what I'd done, and it's all I wanted to do. I I didn't really wasn't much as my wheel cars because I, I didn't relate to them, you know. Again, one of those decisions that by accident I made the right decision 
but not for the right reasons. You know. So by '79, the Grand Prix in Australia had become nothing. It was a, it was a race at 11 a.m. on Sunday morning at, at uh, Sandown, and no one arrived till lunchtime to watch the touring cars. So it was, it was really nothing, and the 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 management of of cams, who I currently, well, not, I won't say hate, but I know there's been deep, a bit of eruption there. Oh, well, well, they're in serious trouble right yeah. as we speak. But this, they said to John Sawyer, who's my manager here, uh, would be running the Grand Prix because it's such a disaster. So John came to me and I said, "Oh yeah, okay, we'll get behind it and do what we can." And as I wrote to Ron Walker the other day, I said. God was good to us because Alan Jones won the World Championship in 1980 and he's a personal friend of mine. So I ring him and say, why don't you bring your Williams out, Alan? So he, he did. And we brought, and I had a, a bunch of, and I had another friend, Daniel Girard, who's a French national, because I was lucky because I was, one of my, my one, of, one of my friends, see, I brought ties from Holland, France, and Germany, and Taiwan or China. So I already was working in in France with Cleaver, and um, I got to know people who who in turn could help me in 1980 with the Grand Prix. Dan de Girard was a journalist and a famous chef. He knew all the Formula One drivers, so they came for peanuts because we knew them. We, they come for a nice weekend of racing in Australia. We looked after them. They loved it. So, um, so, the, and so as a result of that, I could see, going back to the NASCAR thing, I could see that the Jubilee Committee in South Australia wanted the Grand Prix of Adelaide. And I spent, I spent uh, three years taking the drivers who would come to Adelaide after the Grand Prix here in Melbourne, at Calder to uh, be interviewed by the media and by everybody. Because they were quite famous people in those days. I mean, the, you know, we got Nicky Lauder and those sort of people. Top Formula One drivers on planet Earth would go to Adelaide with me. We go to a hotel reception, and the media would be there, and they'd all say, "I'll give you the letter I wrote to Ron confidentially." Um, and they said, uh, "They said, um, oh, well, Grandpa can never come here." I said, Why? So I own a racetrack here. I've got 20 stores here. Why wouldn't you come to Adelaide? What's wrong with Adelaide? Oh, well, it's only got a million people. So, so that mean the Grand Prix can't come in? You know, I, I, that's how I, I work with them. Eventually, uh, after doing that for three years, um, I got the ear of the Premier. And, I, and, and Bernie Eccles and I were working together on it. Because um, I, 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 I you, you read the letter. I won't mm. post my words. Nothing in the letter is confidential except I sent it to Ron Walker for a different reason to explain the the economic impact that came out of the which I was. I met the. I went to the sports club of Monaco in '82 and saw how it worked. How how the principality of Monaco got extra economic impact. You can read it. 
So by by the time in that 80 to 84 was the last event I run in October 84, I've already got the land. On October 84, I'm starting to build the NASCAR track. At the last day, I stood up on that grandstand there, watched the scraper there, in the, uh, getting it ready. Um, I'd already been to see NASCAR. They agreed that by when I could build a track, I got NASCAR, and that's coming 88. So it was, it was a very busy boy, you know. There you go. What a special chat from the archives with Bob Jane. A big thank you to the team at the National Library of Australia for providing us with that audio. Really fantastic to listen to a legend of the sport. Heard some of those stories before, some of those ones I haven't heard. It is great to hear a legend of the sport on our podcast over the journey. We've got some more from the archives episodes that we'll wheel out over the course of the upcoming months. Keep your ears peeled. Keep your eyes peeled too on our website, bookshop.vhsleuth.com.au. We've got a bunch of new release books, some new stuff coming. Father's Day is on the horizon. Christmas not far away. Jump on there and grab yourself some copies. We've got some great books. The Perkins Engineering Car History book's a few months away. The Adelaide 500 History book's out now. Neil Crompton's book is not too far away. It's going to be a big Christmas and a big Father's Day for those who love their motorsport books. Jump on our website, bookshop.vhsleuth.com.au. Join our newsletter too through our regular V8 Sleuth website. And, of course, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Keep the messages. Keep the feedback coming. We love hearing from you about our podcast, who you'd like to hear on upcoming episodes, any questions that you might have for our Q&A episodes. We've got a lot in store for the second half of 2021. Anyway, that's us done. Hope you've enjoyed this episode. I'll chat to you again next time on another episode of the V8 Sleuth Podcast, powered by Repco.